Amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. So if you'll turn to chapter 19, we'll start reading at verse 16, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 42. So John chapter 19, we'll begin at verse 16. If you need a Bible to study God's Word with us, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. It is two months um, from now that we'll be celebrating Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter, and that week before, of course, called Holy Week. We'll be in this section of uh, the Gospels talking about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So if you're wondering why we're covering it now, if you're visiting with us, uh, we've been in a verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel for the last several months. And uh, we just find ourselves uh, finishing John's Gospel. We'll uh, look at uh, Jesus on the cross today, his resurrection next week. And uh, we got three more weeks uh, after today in John's Gospel. And then we'll start a new study in a new book. We'll probably be looking at Peter's epistles starting um, in March. So uh, today, chapter 19, we'll begin reading at verse 16. While you're turning there, just another quick announcement that I wanted to make is um, somebody was asking about it this morning. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I was mentioning that um, it, it's, it's a blessing to be able to be on Grace FM with our radio program uh, under the fig tree at 3.30 in the afternoon and, uh, of course, 3 o'clock in the morning as well. And some do listen early in the morning. Uh, but uh, we have an opportunity to expand our radio ministry and one of the things that Pastor Ed at Calvary Chapel Aurora has asked me to do is to be on a regular schedule on Calvary Live. And that's from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And that's a call-in where people uh, call in and ask questions. And they've been doing that for a while, and um, I've done it once. But they want me to do a regular um, um, schedule and, um, and to be on a rotation with Pastor Ed and Eric Cartier and Al Pittman. And so this Wednesday, I'm going to be in studio with Ed, so you can call in with a question um, and ask a question, and we'll try to answer it the best we know how. And I'll be doing that for a little bit uh, down there, but we can get the equipment uh, here to have technology to where I can do it from my office. And uh, so hopefully we can figure that out, and I won't have to drive down to Aurora. But just be praying about that. It's a great opportunity to be able to just, uh, once again, all the way along the Front Range up into Wyoming, me to to be on air to be able to minister give the gospel pray with people answer questions because people have a lot of questions so this Wednesday uh, we'll start that and I'll let you know what the schedule is going to be and maybe that I'm on on Tuesdays from four to five o'clock we don't know exactly how it's all going to work out but uh, we'll keep you updated keep praying for that keep praying that the Lord will provide for us to be able to get that equipment get it set up and I'll be able to do it from here uh, in the meantime, I'll drive down to Aurora. Just pray I get back in time for Wednesday night service because it goes till 5, and that means flying out the door and getting out of Aurora and uh, getting here by 7 o'clock. So we'll do it, right? The Lord will provide, make a path. So, <laughs> so we'll get it done. But in the meantime... Um, uh, we'll just, you know, do the best that we can in going down there and um, until we get everything set up here. So John chapter 19, we left off last time at verse 16, and we read at verse 16 of uh, John's gospel, chapter 19, then he delivered him to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus and led him away. And Father, we do pray this morning, we're so thankful that we can be here in this place on this Sunday morning as we customarily do going through the Word of God. And Lord, um, I just love the simplicity of being able to come and be with the believers, first of all. 
and, and then to fellowship, to, to be um, able to pray f- um, together and, and with each other, uh, to be in your word, to, to worship you. And we know that's what the early church was all about. And Lord, we're about that as well. And Lord, this morning, I pray that as we really are on holy ground here, that as we see our Lord dying for us because of his love for us, that it would touch our hearts to a greater degree. That, Lord, that it would cause us to, Lord, be more in love with you, more in awe and wonder uh, what you did for us, uh, more secure in, in knowing of your love for us, demonstrate and prove for us. And, Lord, that we would leave this place rejoicing greatly once again because Jesus Christ has given us salvation and forgiveness of sin through his death and resurrection so lord we give you this time in jesus name amen and so we looked at all the trials that took place jesus on trial as you recall he was bound up from the garden of gethsemane taken over to where the high priest was he would stand first of all before annas the high priest and then he would stand before the religious council the sanhedrin where he was uh, condemned to death and he was beaten He would then be handed over to Pilate, the Romans, who would come out and told the Jews that I find no fault in this man at all. Matter of fact, we read last week that Pilate had declared Jesus to be innocent on three different occasions here in John's gospel. But yet it was the crowds that were insistent. They would interrupt Pilate. They would cry out that we want Jesus crucified. We have no king but Caesar. And so with that, Pilate had Jesus scourged. They still insisted that he be uh, crucified. And so he gives in to the, the cries of the crowds. And Jesus is delivered now to be crucified as we read in verse 17. And Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place uh, called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, or Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue. So Jesus would take his cross, that wooden beam, that they would place on his shoulders. Now remember, when Jesus was scourged, he was scourged with that, that cat of nine tails, and, and that scourge would reach all around his shoulders. They probably would scourge him not only on the backside, his back, and the back of his arms and his shoulders, but also on his front side as well. So his shoulders have been cut open and ripped open and, and are bleeding, and he takes that you know, cross, and he would put it on his shoulders, and he would walk down the narrow streets of Jerusalem called the Via Della Rosa, or that is the, the way of sorrows. And with the cross on his shoulders, he would walk to that place of execution. It was 2,000 years before this time that you read in Genesis chapter 22 that it was Abraham that took his son, his only son, as the Lord would say, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice for me. And so there is Isaac walking up that hill that was called Mount Moriah, and it was Isaac that had the wood of the sacrifice on his back. And he would turn to his father and say, I have the sacrifice, you know, the wood of the sacrifice. You have the knife and the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And it was Abraham that would say at that time that God will provide himself a sacrifice. And we know that story in Genesis chapter 22 that the Lord would stop that sacrifice. But it would be 2,000 years later after Abraham and Isaac walked up that hill, Isaac with the wood of the sacrifice on his back, that we know that Jesus here, with the wood of the sacrifice on his back, his father watching him walk up that exact same hill to that place, Mount Moriah. 
And this time there's no stopping the sacrifice. That God will provide himself a sacrifice. God in the person of Jesus Christ now going to become our sacrifice for the atonement of sin. And Jesus would walk outside the city, out the Damascus gate, to that place that was called Golgotha, Calvary in the Latin. Uh, it was near where Solomon's quarries was. Because you see, a thousand years prior to this, when Solomon was building the temples, he would take the stones, um, they would mine the stones that were used for the temple on top of Mount Moriah. And as they did between the city of Jerusalem and the top of Mount Moriah, they would dig. It was like a quarry. And on the north-facing side of where they were digging for uh, the stones for the temple, it made an imprint there on the side of the hill that was an imprint of a skull. If you go there today, you can still see that imprint. It's been eroded uh, over the last 2,000 years, but you can make it out. And so they called that place the place of the skull. They called it Calvary, Golgotha. It was an awful place. They're on the top of Mount Moriah. It was a place where it smelled of death because they put people to death there by crucifying them, the Romans. And all of this is Jesus makes his way to the top of Mount Moriah, to Calvary, to this place of the skull. While all this is going on, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. We know Leviticus chapter 4, verse 12, the sin offering was taken outside of the camp, just as Jesus, who is our sin offering, was taken outside of the city where he is crucified. The book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, for the bodies of those animals whose blood it is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Leviticus chapter 1, concerning the burnt offering. It would be killed on the north side of the altar, just as Jesus would be killed north of the city, north of the temple where they did the burnt offerings. So Jesus taken to that place called the place of the skull, Golgotha, in verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. So they crucified him. Of course, pinning his hands to that wooden beam that he carried through Jerusalem to Golgotha, having help, of course, uh, by one who would help him carry that cross as it was too much for him. He would fall under the weight of that cross. But when they got there, we know that they would drive those spikes through his hands and also through his feet. Now, it's interesting. In the last uh, several years, they have found, they've excavated uh, wooden crosses where uh, people were crucified back in Jesus' era, back in this day. And what they found was the remains of the, the skeletons that were there um, that we always kind of picture it as one spike going through the feet, right? One foot on top of the other, and they drove a spike through. Well, what they have found, probably the way that they did it was the hands, of course, would be on that, um, that cross beam that went across, and then the feet, instead of on front of the beam, it was they would separate the feet and put them on the side of the beam. And that's what they found in the excavations. So one foot would be on one side, one on the other, and then they would drive two spikes, one through right below the ankles. 
And uh, some of the, you know, professors there, uh, one professor I know, I was reading uh, from Hebrew University, an anatomy professor, was writing about they did that because it would put that crucified victim in a very awkward, very difficult and unnatural posture on the cross where it would evidently just increase the agony of the sufferer. Can you imagine, you know, a spike right below your ankles as you were there, and your knees would be bent a little bit as you were hanging on that cross. Now, Jesus on the cross, it was an extremely cruel way to put somebody to death because it was death by suffocation. As you were kind of, your knees were bent, they were, they were spread out, and, and your hands are out, uh, you would be hanging there, and your bones became out of joint eventually. And it would squeeze, you know, the air out of your diaphragm is what would happen very slowly. And the only way is you're kind of in that sitting position to get a breath of air so you can fill up your lungs or try to at that time is to push up on those nails in your feet. And, of course, that would be... Uh, uh, something that would cause excruciating pain that would shoot all throughout your body. Crucifixion, that's where uh, the word comes from, excruciating. So it was a horrible, terrible way to die, a slow death. And Jesus, as you look particularly at Mark's timeline, Jesus was crucified at the third hour. It would be the sixth hour that darkness covered the land until the ninth hour. So he was on the cross for six hours, which was really relatively a short time for a crucified victim to be on the cross. But remember, he was beaten severely. He was flogged. Um, he had gone through such sufferings before he was pinned to the cross. But most crucified victims didn't go through that suffering that Jesus did. And with the slow process of the air in suffocating, it would take two days usually, sometimes up to three days, for that person to die on the cross, for the process to take place until death came. It was David that wrote in Psalm 22, speaking prophetically of Jesus' death on the cross. He would write that I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Uh, in other words, extremely painful. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a posture and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dusk of death, David writes. Jesus on that cross suffering, his body, you know, slowly just um, the bones coming out of joint, crucified between two others we know from the other gospels as they were thieves. We continue in verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. And therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate in verse 22 answered, What I have written, I have written. Now why the title king of the Jews written in three languages? As we're told in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. I think it was a proclamation to all who could read that Jesus is king. And Pilate is interesting here, who would not stand up to the crowds when they cried, crucify him. He would now stand up to those religious leaders that he, you know, uh, was afraid of. And, and now, you know, the religious leaders coming to him protesting about this sign that was 
<coughs> excuse me, put on the cross, and they write, you know, as Pilate writes, King of the Jews, they're saying, hey, put, he said, I'm the King of the Jews. So here Pilate stands up to them. He says, hey, what is written is written. It is done. Go away. Get away from me. Back off. It is done. I've written what I've written. In verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So the soldiers who crucified Jesus, they would split up his clothing. But when it came to his tunic, which was the outer, outer robe, it was a, uh, a more valuable piece of clothing. It was one piece. It was seamless. And we know that when we look at the book of Exodus, when the book of Exodus tells us about the, the, the high priest garments and the description of the breastplate and the miter and all that, in Exodus chapter 28, it tells us that the high priest's robe was to be made out of one piece of material, seamless, so that it does not tear. And Jesus, of course, is our great high priest. And the soldiers here, what they do is they cast lots to see who would get Jesus' robe. Just as Psalm chapter 22, verse 18 declares would happen. So once again, we see a prophecy of the Old Testament being fulfilled concerning Jesus' death. The soldiers rolling dice, playing games, even as Jesus is there dying for their sins. One of the things that, that strikes me is sometimes we will talk to people, won't we? And I know that I've talked to people. I've even talked to individuals, a few, that were even near death. They were on their deathbed. And I've talked to them about Jesus and salvation and, and uh, you know, coming to him uh, for the hope of heaven. And I've heard the response from them of, I'll take my chances. And when I hear that, it, it, it is so uh, much of a surprise, and it grieves me, obviously, deeply, just as when you hear that, sometimes people will respond to you when you give them the gospel, well, I'll take my chances. Well, I'm not so sure. Kind of like they're rolling the dice. And of course, if you're here today, and anyone who is here this morning, hearing this message, I pray that you would never take a chance when it comes to your salvation. Because if you're thinking, I'll take my chance, or I'll roll the dice, or I'll just kind of uh, do it my way, you're going to end up losing. Because the scriptures is very clear, God declares very clearly that the only way to salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And when it comes to us as Christians, as I bring it home just a little bit closer to us, I pray that we wouldn't play games with our Christianity. And what I mean by that, that we would be ones, as we see Jesus on the cross here, dying for us because of his love for us, that we know that we can surrender our lives to him, that he will be faithful to us, to his word given to us, but we wouldn't be ones that we would, you know, shrug our shoulders and say, you know what, I'll do things my own way. Or if we're in a situation or circumstance where we're frustrated and we just kind of throw up our hands and say, Lord, uh, I'm just going to go about the world's way. 
or do it my own way. Or we kind of turn our backs and we go the direction that we want to go. Here's the thing that we need to remember when we have a tendency to want to do that. That we need to see his back. That was scourged for us. His shoulders that carried that cross. His hands that are there pinned to that cross. I pray that we wouldn't turn our backs on him. We wouldn't shrug our shoulders. We wouldn't throw up our arms and our hands in frustration because we're wondering, Lord, what's going on in my life? Can I trust you? But when we look and ponder and see what Jesus has done for us, that it would cause us to say in our hearts, Lord, I don't want to play games with you. And I don't want to play games with my walk with you, but I want to be surrendered to you. And I see you on that cross. Your back that was scourged for me and those shoulders with those wooden beams, the splinters that would be left in there, bleeding, your hands that are pierced and your feet. And Lord, you did it for me. And I know that your love is absolutely incredible and unconditional. And it was demonstrated and proved to me on Calvary's cross. And I trust you with my salvation. And I know that I can trust you with my life and whatever is going on in my life. And it causes me as I do that to go to the cross. And I want to encourage you, always have the cross before you every day. Because it will cause you to be completely surrendered to him. So now there stood by the cross as we continue reading in verse 25 of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. And I wonder what Mary thought when she saw her son, her firstborn, nailed to that cross. No doubt she's weeping, she's lamenting, and, and I wonder if she thought back to what was told her when Jesus was only eight days old. Do you remember that story in Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2 tells the story of the birth of Jesus, but then it goes on to tell us about how eight days after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary would take baby Jesus when he was only eight days old from Bethlehem, they would make that short journey to Jerusalem only a few miles away. And there they're going to have Jesus be circumcised on the eighth day and they're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. When they get to the temple, they are met by an elderly man named Simeon. And we know that Simeon would recognize that this is the one, Jesus, this is the consolation of Israel. And he would hold Jesus as we read that account there. And he would say as he cried out to the Lord, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Simeon in that incredible moment would then have a word from the Lord to Mary, and he would say to her that this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And so I, I'm sure that as Mary is experiencing this moment, that as she sees her son on that cross, that a sword is piercing her heart, even as she watches her son dying for her sins, for the sins of the world. 
knowing that he was born to die. And with Mary's mother is her sister, who is Saloma, and the mother of John, um, who I believe is the disciple John mentioned here at the cross with these four women. There is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, Clopas, he could have been one of the men, some believe, Bible scholars, that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, uh, those two men on the road to Emmaus. We uh, read about that in Luke's account. And then Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. All these women, very devoted to Jesus, followed Jesus. And even as Jesus is in pain, suffering, dying, his concern is for others. His concern is for the care of his mother. And he turns to John and entrusts her into his own care. He says, woman, behold your son, and John, behold your mother. And so from that very hour, she would stay with John. He would take her away, apparently. He would spare her from seeing the end of his sufferings. Now, here's something to ponder. I've kind of thought about why John at this time. We know from the Gospels that, that Mary had other children that there, Jesus had brothers and sisters, or half-brothers and sisters, more accurately. One of those is James. The other one was Jude. James, who has that epistle in the back of the New Testament. James, who we know from the book of Acts, was a leader in the early church of Jerusalem. We know that Jude also was a believer, the, the brother of Jesus. He writes that little epistle right before the book of Revelation. Why didn't they take care of Mary? Why, why didn't he entrust her into their care? Well, obviously they're not here. And, and Scripture indicates that they didn't become believers until after the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the point that I want to make this morning. That John being a disciple, that there was a special bond there's a special bond of believers that was taking place here, and it's true with you and me. You see, we are a family, aren't we? And as a family, that is something to be very much valued and treasured and very precious to us. And as we belong to the body of Christ, there's a special bond. There's a oneness that happens, and we have the privilege to be a part of that. And I pray that we would never take that for granted. You see, a lot in the world, they don't have that. Unbelievers don't have that. And yes, we have our own families that we can be very close to, but I'm sure that there are some that are here that there's been strained relationships or even severed relationships with your family because you're a Christian. But you do have a family, the family of God. And I would encourage you to make sure that you see that as a priority and something very special, that we're one in Christ, and it is something very special. Any of you that have been a part of the body of Christ for any length of time know that that bond that we have as Christians is very, very unique and very, very special and very much of a blessing. So here John is entrusted to the care of Mary, Jesus' mother, in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus, at the last moments of his life, we know from the other Gospels that after Jesus commissions John to take care of his mother, that he would offer the fourth of seven sayings from the cross. 
that saying as they cried out would be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not recorded here by John, but it is recorded by Matthew and Mark. And at that time, when all of our sins were placed upon Jesus, he would sense that separation from the Father that he had never experienced from all eternity past. He experienced that separation so that you and I wouldn't have to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, he lived a perfect life, to be sin for us, because all of us have sinned, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus, taking your sins, my sins, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now records the fifth saying of Jesus, I am thirsty. Now we know from Mark chapter 15, verse 23, for you note takers, that Jesus did not accept a pain-numbing drink at the beginning of his ordeal on the cross. Now at the end of his suffering here on the cross, he has been on the cross for six hours. He accepts a taste of generally diluted wine. I, I think it was a fulfillment of what we read in Psalms chapter 69, verse 21. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And they would wet his parched lips and dry throat so um, he would be able to declare three of the most wonderful words. A very incredible, wonderful declaration that it is finished. He would cry out, Te telestai. Now it's interesting, papyri receipts from taxes have been recovered with these words on it. Te telestai, which means paid in full. It is finished. Jesus is not saying, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Our redemptive work has been completed. He has suffered the penalty of God's justice, which sin deserved. The price has been paid in full for our sins by Jesus' death on the cross. And we're going to spend all eternity marveling over these three words. It is finished. And here's the thing to always remember. Don't try to add to it. It is finished. It is done. And we receive it by faith as we come and surrender our hearts to Jesus Christ. Now, when somebody comes along and says, as they did in the early church, well, that's fine, Jesus' death on the cross, but it isn't finished. You have to be circumcised. Today, it might be you have to be baptized, or you have to join our church, or you have to take a communion, or you have to be confirmed, or you have to do something. When somebody comes along and says, you're not saved unless you do this, then they are ones that take away from the sufficiency of the cross. They're taken away from what Jesus said. It is finished. It is done. I've paid the price. I've done the work. We're dying for your sins. And you don't add to that. And Paul would talk about that as he would talk about the sufficiency of the cross and Jesus rising from the grave as we come in faith alone is what brings salvation. And as Jesus cried out those words, he would bow his head and he gave up his spirit. He is the one who gave us life. He's the one that provided for life and forgiveness. He gave up his life. In John chapter 10, you recall, he said, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for, of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. And then Luke records the seventh and final saying on the cross 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he would then give up his spirit. In verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So the Jews didn't want the bodies on the cross during the feast, during the Sabbath. Death on the cross, again, as I mentioned to you, was a slow process. And if the soldiers came along and broke your legs, you know, when you're on the cross, it would speed up the process of death because you couldn't push up on the nail to get a breath of air. So you would die much quicker, and here it is, the preparation day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread approaching as well as the Sabbath. And so oftentimes the Roman soldiers, they would leave you know, the bodies up on the cross overnight and deal with it. And what they usually did is they just had a big garbage heap that they threw the bodies in. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 says that if a man is put to death on a tree, you know, don't let... Um, that body be left overnight or on the Sabbath. So the Jews want the bodies taken down for the Sabbath that's coming up. Now, they would break the legs of the two thieves that were on either side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't have to break his legs, which again, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament scripture. He is, the first of all, the Passover lamb, isn't he? And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, the Passover lamb, you were not to break any of its bones when it was killed. Also, Psalm chapter 34, verse 20, he guards all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Speaking of Jesus' death on the cross, which John's going to quote here in just a few verses, but first of all, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Again, quoting from Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. They knew Jesus was dead, but let's make sure so a soldier would thrust a spear into the side of Jesus, up into his chest cavity, and when the soldier pulled out that spear, blood and water came out. Some say that it's evident that Jesus died of a broken heart, the pericardium being full of blood and serum. And it would also show us, listen, that Jesus was a real person who died a real death. Later on in early church, you know, after this, there were those who were called Gnostics, um, and the Gnostics, John would have to address in his epistles later on, that would say that Jesus didn't have a, a body. It just looked like he had a body. And they would deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died a bodily death. He died here on the cross, and he rose from the grave bodily. It was a bodily resurrection. There are those later on that would come on the scene, and they would say, well, Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He just passed out. It was called the swoon theory, trying to dismiss the resurrection of Jesus, that he just passed out. The Roman soldiers didn't know it. They put him in the tomb, and then when Jesus was in the tomb, somehow he woke up, even though he had been beaten severely, even though he had been on the cross, even though he had been scourged, even though they put a spear up through his chest cavity, and out came the blood and water, 
that Jesus just passed out. And they closed the tomb with a large stone and sealed it with the Roman seal that Jesus somehow got up, pushed that large stone away, and snuck by the soldiers. It doesn't make any sense at all. So John is saying, here I was. I was there. It truly happened. So you can see it's all fulfilling prophecy and that you may believe. And then as we finish the chapter, verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, that of course was John chapter 3, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And then he took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, and for the tomb was nearby. So Jesus gave up his spirit uh, again, Jesus was taken down, as we know that two religious leaders from the council, first of all, Joseph of Arimathea. He comes, he is one that is not uh, Arimathea, was only about 20 miles from Jerusalem. We also know of Joseph, that he was a rich man. Uh, he was a member of the Sanhedrin council, and according to Luke chapter 23, that he was a good man, a just man, and he did not consent to the decision of the council. He was a secret disciple, as well as the second man here, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, of course, was the master teacher of Israel. He was really sincere, wanting to know, uh, you know, how do you become born again? And we know that both these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, are now disciples of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 12, we read that there were those who were among the rulers who did not confess Jesus because of fear of being put out of the synagogue. Now Joseph and Nicodemus, apparently two of them, they come on the scene and they go to Pilate, they ask for the body of Jesus, and they go on record as saying, we don't care anymore. They would probably lose their positions, their reputations of being religious. And they would go on record as saying, we're going to ask for the body of Jesus. And Joseph says, he's going to use my tomb that's never been used. It's in a garden near Calvary. But we're going on record as saying that we are disciples. What changed their minds when they saw Jesus dying for their sins? And my prayer is, is that we would always, as I mentioned to you, have our eyes on the cross. That we would always be looking to Jesus' love for us and what he's provided for us. And that our message to others, as Paul would say to the Corinthian believers, that I come preaching this, Jesus Christ in him crucified. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for uh, going through this, Lord, once again and seeing Jesus dying for us. And my prayer is that there is no one that is listening to this message at, at this service, Lord. I don't want to just be presumptuous because, um, Lord, even though we may only have a few people, but if there's anyone here that that maybe you've been playing games with your salvation. Maybe you've been thinking, I can wait or, you know, I'll just go my own way. Roll in the dice. Listen, the Bible is very clear. That salvation comes by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And I pray that you would be one 
If you're that, if you're not right with God, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, coming in faith, confessing that you're a sinner because all of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And that's why Jesus went to the cross and he cried out, it is finished, I've done the work. And now you come in faith. You can do so right now, right where you're sitting. You pray in your heart sincerely that Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I confess that. And I believe that you died for my sins personally and individually. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you rose from the grave as well. And you're alive. And I open my heart to you for you to sit upon the throne of my heart. Oh, Jesus, be my personal Lord and Savior. You are my salvation. And I'm not going to play games. I surrender my life to you right now. I give you my life. It's not its own. And thank you for hearing my prayer and for saving me and for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus, in Jesus' name. If anybody prayed that prayer this morning, I'm just going to have you raise your hand and put it back down. Anybody at all, God bless you. I see you in the back. God bless you guys. Anybody else? Father, I thank you for those who have said we're going to make a firm decision for you. And Lord, not play games anymore. And for all of us, that we wouldn't play games with our Christianity. And Lord, that you want us to experience that life that you have for us and life abundantly. Belonging to you, surrender to you fully, trusting you in everything. So, Father, thank you for this time that we've had this morning. I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?